I think one way of defining or <clears throat> describing the nature of a Buddha or the nature of a Buddha mind is that it is someone who has come to an end of seeking. Someone who has come to an end of searching in a way they've come to the end of the path. I think one way of describing an enlightened heart is as being a heart that is truly liberated, truly free from the painfulness as a, of a sense of lack or incompleteness. Now Siddhartha, before his awakening under the Bodhi tree, was a heroic seeker disappointed with his life, disappointed with all that he had, lovely as it was. He was aware that all that he had only went a very short way to cool or to console the aching sense of there being something missing or there's something lacking. So Siddhartha did what we usually do with disappointment, he got busy. (laughs) And he began to seek. And he sought all kinds of experiences, all kinds of ways to transcend, tried all kinds of avenues to happiness and to peace, and to understand what it meant to be truly free. And of course, he did all of this searching and all of this seeking everywhere but where he was and with who he was. So he began to search for perfection, for freedom, for liberation outside of his life, his body, his heart, his mind, his relationships. And feeling separate and apart from all he longed for, He sought for that ending of that longing, also separate and apart from himself. He went to a lot of effort. In the years he spent as an ascetic practicing suppression, resistance, disconnection, disdain, transcendence, were all the kind of ways that he saw in that life, sought in a that life as an ascetic. And in the end of his search, he returned to the very places that he had fled from. Where else could he understand really what it meant to be free, apart from his body and mind and heart and life? He learned just as we have all learned and know that wherever we go, These are what we take with us. So this is what he came back to, to find an end to seeking. And one of the real turning points for Siddhartha was remembering a time when he was a boy and he was sitting on a hillside looking down at his father's fields and saw a farmer going about his very ordinary business of plowing and looking after the land. And Siddhartha remembered that there came to him at that time, quite unexpectedly, 
surprisingly, a very sublime sense inwardly of peace and contentment, tremendous sense of ease in his heart, a calm. And you remember that in those moments, that sense of the, it was just enough. That moment was just complete as it was. Nothing to be added, nothing to be lost, nothing to be gained. And it perhaps was just a very small glimpse of an enlightened mind. Perhaps it was a very small glimpse of intimacy and freedom. And remembering this, he took his seat under the Bodhi tree, not in a kind of accidental, lackadaisical, haphazard type of way. In fact, when he sat under the Bodhi tree, he sat with the resolve that he would remain there until his blood ran cold, if that was how long it took for him to understand what it meant to be free. And in sitting under the Bodhi tree that night, he turned his attention to everything he'd previously rejected and tried to disconnect from, understanding that if liberation couldn't be found here amidst that complex life, where else could it be found? And attending to his body, his mind, his life, he just saw so clearly and so deeply that there is sorrow, there is a cause of suffering, There is an end and a path to its end. And he came to the end of the path, in a way. Saint understood the end of seeking. And when he got up from the Bodhi tree, he wasn't really particularly modest about any of this, you know. (laughs) He got up and kind of proclaimed, you know, I am the Tathagata, you know, one who has gone beyond, I've come to the end of seeking. I've done what needs to be done. I've come to the end of the path and understood profound and limitless liberation. I think in the first, perhaps the first days, he was terribly enthusiastic about all this. As the story goes, you know, leaving the Bodhi tree, he happened to run into just this, you know, guy going about his business on the road, you know, and he pulled him over and said, you know, guess what, you know, I really got it, you know, I'm the Tathagata. And the guy looked at him and said, what? (laughs) You know, he said, walked on. Now, curiously at this point, the Buddha didn't turn into a statue. He didn't retire to a cave. He didn't leave his life. He may have come to an end of seeking, but he certainly didn't come to an end of questioning, of deepening and commitment. And he went from that place of understanding to engage deeply with the world, with people, with teaching. In fact, he lived a very caring and vital and creative life. This is just an encouragement to those of you who brought up the concern that this practice might make you dysfunctional. (laughs) And he didn't, certainly didn't turn away from suffering. He didn't look out at the world and say, well, too bad, folks. You know, I've got it. You do your own thing. 
He knew that the only response really was compassion. But he did come to an end of this sense of lack. In many ways, although this is a story, it is also archetypal, and I think there's so many ways in which Siddhartha's story is also our story. We see our own journey from estrangement and disconnection to intimacy. By the way, this talk is about intimacy. (laughs) We We see our own journeys from resistance and blame and fear to acceptance. We can trace our own journeys from this terrible sense of lack and incompleteness perhaps taking those small steps towards freedom. And perhaps really the heart of Siddhartha's story is an invitation to all of us to really, for us to question and to explore what would it really mean for us to come to an end of seeking? What would it really mean for us to really come to an end of discontent? And this can feel like a very odd possibility because when we look at our life, it, it can seem as if our whole life really is a search. Sometimes that search is very, uh, it, it is moved by a tremendous amount of creativity and investigation and care and questioning. And then I think we also see that sometimes our seeking is more driven by fear and discontent. Because very often we're not seeking something that we already have. We're seeking all that we believe that we don't have. A different, a better mind and body, a different life, a different experience. We seek for perfection sometimes and love, and safety, and refuge. And just like Siddhartha, our seeking is really often directed to places, experiences, apart from where and who we are. And I think this is actually the tension and the pain in our seeking, because we think later, later I'll find this. After this is over, I can be at peace. Somewhere else, what I'm looking for really lies. The future, wishing, hoping, shoulding, in a way are all the vocabulary sometimes that underlies our search. We are also often caught in this sort of belief system where we think that there are so many conditions to getting to where we want to be to get into somewhere we're not, to being someone we're not. We think that we often, to reach that, we have to get rid of who we are and all that we have right now. Milarepa was one of the very admirable yogis of the past. And Milarepa engaged in a very boot camp style of practice. Believe me, this ain't nothing we're doing here. This is the easeful path. 
Milarepa lived in the solitude of the high mountains. Bear in mind, these caves weren't heated. They weren't air-conditioned. He lived in the solitude of the high mountains, and as the story goes, you know, he, he lived on nettles. There wasn't any food up there. And one day he was outside of his cave gathering the firewood to cook his nettles. And when he returned, he found that his cave had been inhabited by a horde of vicious demons. And he tried everything to get rid of them. He tried negotiating with them. He tried to scare them. He tried to overcome them. He tried to pretend they weren't there. He sang to them. He offered them mantras. He blessed them. He prayed for help. And one by one, all of the demons disappeared until in the end there was only one demon left, the most fierce and vicious demon of them all. And all of his strategies exhausted, Milarepa confessed that he could do no more. And in the end, he placed his head in the mouth of the demon. And he said, welcome, stay a while. Bring your friends, move in. And like all good Buddhist stories, this one has a happy ending. (laughs) And the demon in the face of Milarepa's surrender was transformed into a rainbow. I'm going to give you a different version of this story later. Now, I, I suspect that in many ways, too, we can all see ourselves in, in Milarepa. Abandonment, avoidance, despair, resistance, fear, they're part of our lives. And we see how hard it is to be near that which is unpleasant or painful or threatening. How hard it is to be, stay close, to be near to grief and fear, and sadness, and heartache. And, and the movement to disconnect from all of that is such an impulse. It happens so quickly. And when we, we look at our lives, we see the ways in a, that aversion can be such a feature of our lives. It's also not difficult for us to see that anxiety and aversion are the proximate causes of disconnection in our life. Then aversion and anxiety are most often the forerunners of disconnection. We try to disconnect, to flee from thoughts that are hard to be with, from emotions that are hard to bear, from people that we struggle with, from pain that feels too much to accommodate. And yet, when we, as we follow those impulses of abandonment, which is what they are, ways of abandoning ourselves, abandoning our lives, abandoning the, the moment, that movement of abandonment really does very, very little except to strengthen the tendency towards aversion and anxiety. 
Intimacy, I might suggest, is actually the first step in the path of liberation. To learn truly to be at home in our bodies, our minds, our lives. There's a line in Zen teaching. It says, enlightenment is to be intimate with all things. Intimacy is a way of slowing down and beginning to turn the tide of this habit of abandonment. Intimacy is, in truth, an antidote to aversion and ill will in all its guises. The aversion or ill will that can run through our lives in estrangement, in alienation, in intolerance, in judgment, in impatience, all those elements of ill will that can so disturb our hearts. And the Buddha, as we've mentioned, speaks of aversion as being one of the manifestations of fear. And as we see, it's it's expression. We might say that the reflex of aversion and fear is the impulse to abandon. I think aversion, when we look at it really closely and really fearlessly, is a terrible suffering. It's kind of like a ill will, it's like a toxic virus that spreads through our body and mind to infect our lives and relationships. And ill will and aversion, too, is one of the most powerful homes of this sense of I and you, separate apart, us and them. So in the understanding of the path of freedom, we are asked to be intimate with, to find the willingness to explore and understand really what aversion is, what ill will is. And this is not vague or theoretical. I I don't know about you, but most folks don't have to really struggle that hard to find moments of aversion. If we have a hard time, (laughs) we could ask ourselves, we could ask ourselves, what are the demons that are still living in our own caves? And I'm sure we've all tried the same strategies as Milarepa, ignoring them, negating them, You may even have tried during this retreat to offer endless loving kindness to the demons in your own caves with gritted teeth and clenched fists. I think we've all often gone the pathways of trying to explain ill will or anger or aversion to ourselves. Sometimes, of course, we do like to tell ourselves how appropriate our anger is. We might say that other people are kind of aversive, but I'm righteous, you know, I'm just pointing out what's wrong. And I'm sure we have all come to the point, too, where we have exhausted all of our strategies, probably by this point in the retreat, actually. And there's still a demon or two remaining in your cave. It might be a person in your life that you struggle with, someone who has hurt you in the past, someone who's hard to bear in the present, might be a politician. (laughs) 
Could be someone here. The demon in our cave might be a lingering illness or an obsession that just won't seem to go away, a raging mind or a disappointment that we just can't find a way to let go of. Now, intimacy is not about being free from the difficult. Intimacy is really about being free within the difficult. And at times we really inch towards intimacy. When we see the terrible torment and suffering in the world, sometimes when we see the depth of our own woundedness, at times it can feel too much to bear, too much to open to. But even that feeling we're asked to embrace without ill will. And perhaps perhaps aversion or ill will is actually something we learn to be intimate with in bite-sized pieces. You know, in times of greatest calmness, we actually might invite our demon in, ask what does it need. You know, sometimes we think that these small moments of irritation or anxiety or intolerance don't matter. But the small moments of impatience and intolerance and irritation, they are actually the seeds of greater intolerance and hatred and impatience, fed by our dismissal of them. Intimacy begins not with blame or judgment towards their will, but with a willingness and interest to learn to have a dialogue with the difficult. And this is the path of intimacy to really learn to have a dialogue with the difficult. There's a Tibetan prayer that says, Grant that I may be given appropriate difficulties, that my heart might be awakened and my path of compassion fulfilled. You know what the appropriate difficulties are? The ones you have right now. They are the appropriate difficulties. So what does it mean for us, really, to have a dialogue with the difficult? With our worst enemy, with our aching back, with any demon. First of all, to have that dialogue, we need to learn to be steadfast. To be willing to stay present, not to flee. It is true that we can only hate from a distance and that we can only learn to love and soften by staying close. And in doing that, we may just begin to discover that the size of our enemy is equal in size to the size of our aversion and fear. You know, when I was a child growing up with a father who was way too often very enraged and frightening, it would often seem to the kids, us kids in that house, that his anger was so big that it would fill the whole house. In fact, it seemed to fill the whole world. And it would seem so big and powerful that as children we would often actually hide, hide away just to not become the subject of it. You know, now I see my father, he's, he's a very old man. He's a small old man. He's still actually pretty angry. In fact, I was telling Robert T., it's kind of embarrassing when I go visit there 
that my father is probably one of the few people in the town where they live who's actually banned from certain stores and restaurants. (laughs) But something has changed. I have to say something has changed, as I have changed, actually. I can so much see his loneliness, the way his anger has really pushed his relationships away. I can see his fear of being out of control and really don't actually ever feel the need to hide anymore. But that loneliness and fear about being out of control, this is something I can have a dialogue with. And quite honestly, I really see this in my own life. It's such a difficult lesson to learn, to see that our aversion really only pushes the world away that our ill will pushes the world away, and that every time there's a kind of consent to irritation or impatience or intolerance, we're just doing that. We're pushing the world away. Somehow I've come to feel in my own life, and it doesn't mean it's a lesson that doesn't take a lot of learning and still learning, really can't afford ill will. Our world can't afford ill will or rage, or aversion. You see that the great anxiety, the small anxieties and the great anxieties, the great angers and the small angers, the great moments of intolerance and the small moments of intolerance, in truth, they're all the arms and legs of the same demon. And when we do or can find the willingness to stay close, we begin to see that our demon and our suffering really may not be in all the people and the events that we struggle with in the world. But the demon that truly makes us suffer is our resistance and fear and aversion. I'd like to read you a poem by Mary Oliver, which I think really speaks to this. It's called A Visitor. My father, for example, who was once young and blue-eyed, returns on the darkest of night to the, por- to the porch and knocks wildly at the door. And if I answer, I must be prepared for his waxy face, for his lower lip swollen with bitterness. And so for a long time I did not answer, but slept fitfully between his hours of rapping. But finally there came the night when I rose out of my sheets and stumbled down the hall. The door fell open, and I knew I was saved and could bear him. Pathetic and hollow, with even the least of his dreams frozen inside him, and the meanness gone. And I greeted him, and asked him into the house and lit the lamp, and looked into his blank eyes, in which at last I saw what a child must love. I saw what love might have done had we loved in time. Now, it is not only the difficult people in the world that we push away. So, too, do we turn this terrible power of ill will and aversion and resistance upon ourselves with judgment and disdain and blame, and guilt, and scorn. And the Buddha taught this very simple truth. 
except that hatred does not cease by hatred. By love alone does hatred cease. But this is an eternal law. And we all have the potential for anger and fear and aversion. We all have the potential for kindness and fearlessness and love. The cause for perpetuating ill will is estrangement. The cause for loving kindness and compassion and forgiveness is intimacy. The mindfulness that is really willing to attend to all the small and all the large moments of aversion and ill will that we can so easily neglect. This is the beginning of intimacy. I think we need to know how to attend to those moments of ill will with kindness, to know them, to understand them. But we also need to be willing to attend to all the small and large moments of kindness and generosity of balance and understanding that we also meet in ourselves. Because really appreciating these and honoring these in a way is the foundation upon which we nurture all that is wholesome and liberating and healing. And I think so often in our life we can focus only on that which is difficult. And it's true, it needs ill will, needs to be understood. You know, the tendencies towards aversion and judgment and disdain, all those things that fracture our lives, they really need to be understood. But we should never overlook also all those moments of kindness, of care, of sensitivity, of generosity, and to really learn how to rejoice in them, to appreciate them, to nurture them, to know that they truly are the ground from which all that is healing and liberating arises. To be willing to have a dialogue with the unpleasant or the difficult, it's sometimes I think it's a great leap we're asked to make in our hearts. But it is actually the beginning of relationship. And it's also the end of being governed. What we are really governed by in this life, what really are we are hostage to, is everything that we don't have a dialogue with. Because there, there is no relationship So there is no possibility of understanding. There's something I came across which I I actually I think really speaks so clearly to this sense of having a dialogue with the difficult. A a man told the story of how his heart was transformed after an accident in which he lost his sight. He spoke of the power of touch touching the tomatoes in the garden, touching the walls of the house, the materials of a curtain or a clod of earth, as surely seeing them as fully as eyes can see. But he said, it's more than seeing. It is tuning into them and allowing the life they hold to connect with one's own life like electricity. He said, to put it differently, this means an end to living in front of things and a beginning to living with them. 
Never mind, he said, if these words sound shocking, for this is love. You cannot keep your hands from loving what they have truly felt, moving continuously, bearing down, and finally detaching themselves. The last, perhaps the most significant motion of all. I think this is the kind of dialogue, the kind of intimacy we are asked to have with all that we hate and fear, to know them deeply and to learn to let it go. A story of Melarepa had a very happy ending, the demon turning into this wondrous rainbow. But we might ask, what would Milarepa's story look like? if the demon just took up the invitation, moved in, brought their friends, you know, set up their beds, then what would be asked of Milarepa's heart? I think it's understanding. I think it's what the Buddha called the first noble truth, that the nature of samsara is unsatisfactory. It's unreliable, it's uncertain, it's unpredictable. The nature of samsara is that at times it's discomfort, at times it's pain, even torment, and it is never going to be perfect. Discomfort, we might say, is part of living in samsara. Now, we could all exhaust ourselves endlessly trying to devise new strategies, to make samsara different than it is, or we can turn towards it. But also understanding that the first noble truth is not the end of the story. There's also the second noble truth. There is a cause of struggle and suffering and ill will. There's also the third noble truth. There is an end to struggle and suffering, nibbana. And there is a path to its end. Now, the end of suffering and the path to its end is actually not outside of the first noble truth, but found within this life. Just as Milarepa would be asked to get to deeply know his demons, we are asked to find the same intimacy. And out of that intimacy is born acceptance. Not passivity but making peace with, befriending, and mostly the acceptance in which we deeply surrender ill will and aversion and come to know a freedom of heart in which we can actually invite our demons to stay a while. They don't have to go away. And it is that intimacy and acceptance that really is what makes our cave boundless and vast and spacious. As sometimes we stumble our way towards acceptance, learning moment by moment to let go of our liking, our disliking, our views, our stories, our impatience, our intolerance. Acceptance is really learning to lay down the burden of struggle and fear. I think acceptance is when we have just stopped arguing with the way things are. We have just stopped arguing. 
It's learning to surrender the demand that this moment must be other than it is just now. Something to be understood, something to be cared for, something to be tended to. Now acceptance is actually made much simpler by our willingness to put down the story of I and you. You are terrible, I am terrible. You are more terrible, I am more terrible. I am better, you are worse. I am worse, you are better. I'm not good enough, you are really not good enough. This story of I and you that just goes on and on because this is a story of resistance and blame that just fans the fires of aversion. And when we can start just gently to put that in that story of I and you, then actually life gets a little simpler. Anger is anger. Fear is just fear. Aversion is just aversion. The story of I and you is the ball of delusion we are all asked to tend to, and we can know this really starkly and simply. Acceptance, I think, is that state of very deep fearlessness and wisdom that's really born of investigation. What is it that makes someone or something feel so unbearable? What is it that makes any part of ourselves our mind, our body, our heart, something to be resented or rejected or judged? What is it that leads us to divide the world into friends and enemies, self and other? We might be tempted to say that it's judgment, but my sense is that it's something actually deeper than that. It is more embedded than some fleeting aversion that really what leads us to do that is much more what is called unwise view. Unwise view. Born of perceptions. We have spoken about this. Born of perceptions, there are feelings. Born of feelings, there are memories and associations. Born of memories and associations, there is liking and disliking, clinging and aversion. Born of all of this, we form a view of I am and you are. A simple example, we pass someone in the dining room. We recognize them as the person in the hall who keeps shuffling. We don't like it. They're interfering with our perfect meditation. In fact, we really don't like them. They're probably, we're sure, a very mindless person. Ruining, in fact, no doubt, everybody's retreat. It is a view. And with that view we have fixed that person in our mind. feels very true, convincing. But with that view, we have also fixed our own heart in aversion. With the view, we have actually stopped seeing that person fully or seeing fully the nature and the effect of our own aversions. 
And then the story plays itself over and over and over again. I am, you are. It's the big three we're dealing with here. Greed and anger and delusion. We learn to meet them and we learn the way that they really do cause suffering. Now part of acceptance is really the willingness to acknowledge that our view of anything at all never tells the whole story. In fact, there is nothing in this world that stays fixed apart from our view of it. That's just a simple truth. Nothing stays fixed apart from our view of it. So our views are really very well worth questioning. (laughs) And intimacy and acceptance, and I think genuinely liberation, asks us to exchange our views for a quality of not knowing. And this is the most difficult place, really, for us to be at ease in, for most human folk. Not knowing is not something we do easily. We really like to know. We really like, actually, to have a view of everything because that's what makes our world feel fixed. It's what makes us feel that we know something, how to react to it, how to deal with it, how to fix it. It's feel like that's how we know ourselves. You know, we have to know. Not knowing is a great art. It's a tremendous sense of openness and freedom. It's not a view, please. Not knowing is not a view. You know, a friend of mine tells a story of when he was studying with one of his Zen teachers, and, you know, the Zen master was really into not knowing. You know, in fact, you know, you'd say, oh, how are you this morning? Don't know. You know, and they and, and, and say, you know, are we having lunch today? Don't know. You know, is it sunny outside? Don't know. You know, and, and, and the sort of the whole kind of Sangha community picked up this, you know, so nobody could ever get an answer to anything, you know. It's like, is there a session today? Don't know, you know. So it's even possible to turn that into a view. We can turn anything into a view. And it's so interesting to see the way that we turn things into views. But it is actually not knowing, this sense of not knowing, of not fixing, that that's allows, what allows us to have a dialogue with the difficult rather than flee from it. Because we don't know. We're interested. We're curious. Why is this happening? What are the conditions that lead to it happening? And there's less of a tendency to try and freeze anything in place in the world anywhere. When we can have a dialogue with the difficult, without view, then we can ask what, is it, what it needs. Is it attention, generosity, love, forgiveness, patience? Is it actually letting go? Is there something we're being asked to let go of? It's a quite, kind of inquiry, a dialogue, a wise effort, which is really in the service of freedom, a freedom not outside of the difficult, but please, you know, Mindfulness, insight, is not a magic broom to make samsara perfect. But it is a way of learning to find that freedom within the imperfect. 
we begin to see that the painfulness and intensity of an alienation can't be separated from the intensity of ill will. That that estrangement can't exist apart from its neglect of it. Through intimacy, we begin to calm the agitation. We begin to learn the path to acceptance. And I think most of all, we begin to understand the freedom of not being governed. Not being governed inwardly or outwardly. There's a poem I'd like to end with, which I think speaks to this. It says, there is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound, whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole. Just a moment, quietly together.